There's a legend in some regions of the Appalachia about Soap Sally, and some people say she's this old woman who wears way too much makeup, and others say she's an old man trying to pretend he's an old woman. And uh, according to the legend, Soap Sally, she stalks the area at dusk looking for children who have run away from home, and she grabs them by the hand in a death-like grip and leads them off, and nobody ever sees them again. People say she grinds up their bodies and turns the children into soap. And there's a special kind of soap called lye soap, which was made many years ago from the fat and bones of animals. Soap Sally uses the fat and bones of children to make her own special brand of soap. And some people say she's made the soap to resemble the children's hands. And when she's done, they say she'll sell the soap to the parents of their missing children. The parents never realize that they're washing themselves with the remains of their own sons and daughters. In the past, parents would warn their children about Soap Sally, saying, If you don't get home by dark, Soap Sally will get you. Or, stay away from those woods, Soap Sally will get you. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone and plus... has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my telling you stories of the old... Country. There was this girl... It was back when we were little kids. ...to find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Well, welcome all of our lovely listeners back. Hello, lovely listeners. I've missed you so. I hope you're all having a fantastic week. And if you're not, just give me their names. Put them on a list, and I'll deliver them to my friend. My friend who has a very particular set of skills. But let's keep that on the down low, because we don't want me being carted away by the authorities and this turning into serial, where we have an interruption telling us that you have a call from whatever penitentiary Samantha has landed herself in now. Angola. Angola. <laughs> Yeehaw. Rodeo time. You're going to be queen of the craft fair, the Angola Prison Rodeo. This is basically all I want out of life. But we do want to thank all of you for coming back. Everyone that's left ratings and reviews on iTunes. Zara Meister left a very nice review. and want to thank them for that. And we do want to encourage you to also reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or other social media. And you can also check out our website at justastorypod.com. And our handle on all social media is justastorypod. So we're pretty easy to find. If you want to visit our website... There you can find links to our merchandise store where we have lovely, lovely merchandise available for purchase, ranging from notebooks to coffee cups to t-shirts, however you would like to wear your Just a Story pride. And we'll have the June design up, which is from the Strange Case episode, if you would like a lovely Ted Bundy t-shirt. And it is lovely. You know Zac Efron's going to play him in an upcoming movie. And I have to say, the casting... Pretty spot on. I can see it. But I also have to say, what is up with all these former Disney stars becoming serial killers in movies? The kid playing Dahmers from Disney Channel 2. It's true. If you'd like to talk about your opinions on that or other things, you can reach out to us on the Urban Legend Hotline. And that number is 512-222-3375. Now back to the jams. Or the story at hand. That too. So we are going to start this week off with a lovely Appalachian folk tale, or Booger Bear. Booger Bear? That's what they call like, boogeymen in that area. 
I thought that was just a pet name. Like Biscuit Butt or something. All you lovely listeners are just booger bears. Oh, my sweet little booger bear. I'll do the affirmation this week. But this is a great one called Soap Sally. I like the alliteration. It's very J.K. Rowling of them. So it's especially in the kind of Georgia area. Mm -hmm. And the story goes that Soap Sally stalks the area in your town at dusk. She's hoping to wash you up? No, she's looking for unsuspecting children. Maybe ones that have run away from home or stayed out too late against their mother's warning. And you see, the children are never seen again. Once Soap Sally gets a hold of them? Now, every time a child would go missing a few days later, Soap Sally would be seen going from town to town, carrying a sack of fresh lye soap. Mm-mm. Handmade. Mm-mm. Organic. All, all natural. All natural. Mm-mm. So, Soap Sally's killing kids, turning them into soap. All right. Well, so, of course, she's a burger bear. She's a boogeyman. She's... Used by parents to warn their children to be home before dusk. Cautionary tale. Stay away from the woods. Mm -hmm. One writer said, laugh if you must, but that story about Soap Sally kept me from wandering away from home after dark on many an occasion. Now, you may be asking, what does stealing children and soap have to do with all of this? Well, if you haven't seen Fight Club, this is how the soap gets made. Okay. I have a feeling this is going to be like knowing how the sausage gets made. I may never wash again. I'm going to wish you didn't. Okay. So, well, of course there are different types of soap, and this is the old school lye soap. Lye is an L-Y-E, right? Not like it's a lie, it's a person. It could be both. Okay. (laughs) So Foxfire is a fantastic publication about Appalachian folk traditions, and they had a little article about making traditional lye soap. Did it say, first you begin with bad children? Yes. Now, quote, now Ma thought some of our questions were pretty funny, like when we asked about it being too harsh to wash her skin in, and she said she'd be proud to wash in it, and that I'd get you as clean as regular soap. When we asked about putting perfume in the soap, I thought she'd never stop laughing. <laughs> so I'll tell you, we never did care. We just had old smelling lye soap. <laughs> I like Ma. I like her. So lye soap is basically made of lye and fat. So what is lye? I know what fat is, unfortunately. So, nowadays, you can buy lye from a store, Uh huh. but back then, you would make it from wood ashes. Okay. And it's a natural salt, like a sodium hydroxide salt, mm-hmm. and back then, they would take hard wood, and they'd gather the ashes up. So, they'd make this every a few times a year. Okay. And they'd collect the ashes over time in a big barrel, mm-hmm. and when it was time to make soap... They would take the ashes and they would make like ash tea, basically. That's my phrase. Like they'd put all the ashes in a big sack mm-hmm. and they would put it in boiling water and then strain it okay. after it sat there for yeah. a little while. That's ash tea. That is exactly what that is. Don't drink that, guys. No, because lye is extremely harsh. It will burn your skin if it comes in contact with you. I swear, I'm like now recalling this memory of my grandmother having a big barrel full of ashes at her house. And it was like an old habit. Like she never made soap, but it was like this weird compulsion she had to keep the ashes. I don't know what she would use it for other than to make lye. Well, maybe she was hiding bodies. I mean, we all know that's possible. Yeah, old Belle. Yeah. Well, might have been hiding the bodies. So you have your lye, which you boil down, and then you add in fat. 
Okay. So that makes it a lot gentler, and you can apply it to your skin, but really, it was more used for, you know, washing clothes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so you can use any kind of fat. Anything. Okay. But you, so you can use, like, lard, bacon drippings, mutton fat. Bad hu- children. Human fat. Yeah. Anything. Anything. Okay. So... You take your ash tea and you mix it with fat and that makes lye soap. Right. You boil it all down. You get this kind of gooey consistency. You pour it out into a pan, let it sit and harden, and then, you know, cut it up. And make bars. Yeah. Okay. So this is how you make soap. That's how you make soap. The more you know. Now, to add a little more creepiness to this story, at the time, some people would also use bones to help scrub the clothes whenever they are washing them. This is just a bloodbath. And so, uh, they, uh, 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 no. Uh-huh. Uh, no. So we get blood out. <laughs> Will it? <laughs> but it's interesting because stories of people making soap from human fat is apparently fairly old. Like how old we talk in here? One of the earliest cases I could find of people making soap from human fat it was in the 1700s. Okay. seventeen. So this is antique fat soap, officially. Was it Deacon Brody? Was he doing it? No, but okay. it was nice French milled soap. Oh. The Cemetery of the Innocents in Paris mm-hmm. was the oldest and largest cemetery right smack in the middle of Paris. The Innocents? Was it just for kids or is it just what it was called? Just what it was called. Okay. Many people could not afford a plot. And they would end up in these mass graves. And they would just bury people on top of each other. So as we've discussed before in our Missing Bride episode, I believe, the overcrowding in Parisian cemeteries was a massive problem. And it was, you know, those verses written about the lovely corpses coming up along with flowers in spring kind of deals with what a problem and how pervasive this phenomena of people not having room to be dead was in Paris. Right. Body parts would rise up. They'd come into people's basements. It was a problem. And they'd also have this foul odor. One visitor in the 18th century described entering Paris as like being sucked into a fetid sewer. Hmm. So with all the overcrowding of the cemeteries in the city, King Louis XVI in 1775 decided to close all the cemeteries within Paris. So no more bodies allowed. Right. And they even exhumed bodies and moved them to underground mine shafts. The catacombs. Exactly. And created a tourist attraction. Yay! And Quasimodo's death place. Now, due to the state of the burial, these kind of bodies just being piled and piled on top of each other, there was kind of a lack of, well, I guess you can call appropriate decomposition. And there wasn't as much oxygen as there normally would be. And... Whenever they went to take all these bones up, they found large mounds of fat left. Oh, my God. And so an article in Scientific American from October 30th of 1852 (sighs) describes this. The human fat was employed to the extent of many tons by the soap boilers and Uh tallow chandlers of Paris for the manufacture of soap and candles. Uh 
The French are a people of fine sentiment, and they certainly carry the quality to a charming point of reflection in receiving light from candles made out of the bodies of their fathers. Uh, yeah, so you can maybe make that into a nice idea, this idea of like, my ancestors are giving me light to read by so that I may learn and grow as a human. But how do you be like, be like my grandma just went out the window, but be like, I'm going to wash my armpits with grandma. They weren't washing much. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Maybe it was mostly candles. Okay. Fun times in Paris. This is this is why the city is legendary for its fine food, wine, romance, and so... French melt soaps. All right. No one was harmed in the making of that soap, at least. Well, the same can't be said for the poor victims of the vampires of Barcelona. Okay, she's sounding more like Soap Sally. Oh, yes. Her name was Indrakita Marti. And around the turn of the 20th century, she was a well-known fixture in the Barcelona underground. She'd moved to the city from the countryside and began working as a woman of ill repute. Oh, my. And she would beg during the day when she wasn't ill-reputing. But then something more sinister began to bubble up, if you will. No. I'm doing it. Soap puns the whole time. She began kind of organizing a child sex ring out of a pizza parlor. What? Not really out of a pizza parlor, but yes, actually like a pedophilic sex shop scandal thing. Right, yeah. She was like... Pimping kids out. To wealthy people. Yes. Fantastic. So while she was facilitating this pedophilia and participating in the assault of children, she thought, well, I've already done such terrible things. Why not just pile a little more on top? And so she began luring the children back to her house. And then she would purportedly kill them and drink their blood. Because she was a practicing witch doctor, an apparent vampire, and she would create all manner of remedies and cosmetics for wealthy, upper society men and women. She was selling cures for tuberculosis. That was a big one. Now, the remedies were concocted of various and sundry parts of the murdered children. She used their fat, blood, hair, and bones, which she powdered. And she engaged with this with children who were infants all the way up to around nine years of age. And she was able to continue doing it for so long because she targeted very vulnerable populations. These were sometimes orphans or the children of you know, street people who were not, like, on the grid. And the authorities were not really interested in running down these kids that they assumed the parents might have neglected or that may have run away. And so for a long time, she was thriving as a businesswoman because she was preying on a very vulnerable population. Now, she lived in Barcelona for around 12 years, and then she made a mistake. She kidnapped the daughter of a man who was not rich, but was very well known in the town and really well liked by a lot of people, including some influential upper society types. Now, the girl's name was Teresita, and she had brought her into her home and cut her hair, but left her standing in front of an open window. And a neighbor saw Teresita and told the police about what she'd seen. And the police entered the apartment to see if they could locate the girl. And when they did, they found all manner of terrifying things. She was finally arrested in 1912 at her flat in El Raval. 
And the evidence that was found in Barcelona, where she'd lived previously, appeared to have remains of several different bodies. In spite of suspicions, and because Marta did not tally her activities, experts are unsure if she was Spain's deadliest serial killer or not. But it is clear that she was practicing some really nasty things for a really long time in Barcelona. There are, of course, apologists who say that, you know, this is all just a big misunderstanding. And it might be, because their records are spotty at best. But this is definitely a story that went down in history. And there are records of her interrogations, in which she confessed to actually contributing to pedophilia by pimping out children. And she also confessed to performing abortions. But she never named any of her customers and did not confess to murder. She was never tried for her crimes, and she died a year and three months after her arrest of uterine cancer. Apparently, that's a trend. If you're mean to kids, you die of uterine cancer. Rule. Rule. Unless you're a boy. You still die of uterine cancer. That's just math. Now, unfortunately, for the history of the world, Marti is not the sole soap maker, cosmetic producer, and or fiend we have to contend with. We must also speak of Leonardo Cianciulli, who in 1939 earned the name the soap maker of Correggio. Leonardo had had a rather difficult life. She had had 17 pregnancies. Three were miscarriages, while 10 of the children had died at a very young age. Her four surviving children were very, very precious to her for, you know, human reasons and also these extenuating circumstances. Now, Leonardo had, in her earlier days, gone to visit a gypsy woman. What? <laughs> a gypsy fortune teller. Of yes, course, yes. yes. This would not be complete without a gypsy fortune teller. Oh, honey. And she'd predicted for Leonardo a terrible fate. She says, You will marry and have children, but all your children will die. Later, she had her palm read by another gypsy fortune teller because you just Stop keep going it. back for more when Stop you get the, the hits keep coming, babe. And this gypsy told her, In your right hand, I see prison. In your left, the criminal asylum. So in 1939, she heard that her eldest and favorite son, because everyone has to have an obvious favorite child because it is 1939 and we don't know that that's bad to do, Giuseppe was to join the army as Italy's entry into the war became increasingly imminent, Leonardo decided what she had to do. She had to make a human sacrifice so that Giuseppe would not be taken as the gypsy had foretold. Stop talking to gypsies and taking their advice. I don't think the gypsy ever told her to make a human sacrifice. I think that was her own creative license. I think you're right. So her first victim, Faustina Setti, was lured by a lie. She said that she had found her husband, but she would need to travel to Pola. And unfortunately, Faustina... Never made it to Pola. Never made it to Pola. She was killed with an axe by Leonardo, who dragged the body into the closet and cut it into nine parts, gathering the blood in a basin, as she wrote in her statement. I threw the pieces into a pot. I did seven kilos of a caustic soda, which I had bought to make soap and stirred the whole mixture until the pieces dissolved into a thick, dark mush, and I poured it into several buckets and emptied it in a nearby septic tank. She's going full Breaking Bad. As for the blood in the basin, I wanted it to wait until it had coagulated. I dried it in the oven and ground it and mixed it with flour, sugar, chocolate, milk, and eggs. 
As well as a bit of margarine. No, it's like Matilda. <laughs> Kneading the ingredients together, I made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to friends who came by to visit, though Giuseppe and I ate them also. She gave them to Giuseppe? <laughs> to make him strong and brittle. Oh no, why'd she turn Russian? <laughs> I don't know, but I feel like this is her voice, even if it is not. The spirits are telling me this is how she sounded. Now, there were two other victims who had similar stories. She convinced them that she found them a job, but it had to be kept secret. This was for the second. Now, the third victim, because this story is not crazy enough, Virginia Cacciapo was a former opera singer who is now 53. Story is not over till the fat lady, lady sings. sings. Yeah, exactly. Oh, don't kill me. So on the 30th of September in 1940, she went to Leonardo's house where she ended up in the pot like the other two. Her flesh was fat and white. And when it had melted, I added the bottle of cologne. And after a long time on the boil, I was able to make some of the most acceptable creamy soap. I gave the bars to neighbors and acquaintances. The cakes, too, were better. That woman really was sweet. No. I'm never eating cake from a stranger again. I probably already wouldn't use soap from a stranger. <laughs> You're a liar. If a woman came up to you with a sweet potato pie and a tinfoil wrapper at a farmer's market and just handed it to you, you're not going to say no. Okay, you're right. <laughs> now, Virginia's sister-in-law had become suspicious after her sudden disappearance. And she was aware that the last place on record that Sweet Virginia, Sweet Sweet Virginia, had been headed was to Leonardo's house. Sister-in-law was a smart cookie. Well, her sister was a sweet cake. Yeah, right. And so she went to the superintendent of police, Reggio Emilia, who, following the many clues left by the murders, unmasked the soap maker. Under questioning, Leonardo Cienciola immediately confessed to three murders. The court found her guilty of the atrocious crimes and sentenced her to 32 years in prison and three years in a criminal asylum. The soap maker is the least intimidating... <laughs> Serial killer moniker ever. I will make you into tea cakes. Don't I mean, what she actually does is terrifying. No, it is. And like that she has no, like she's not holding it back, I guess. She's like, well, if I'm going to tell him I killed him, I guess I can give him the recipe. Right? She's like, oh, just mix a little of this. Recipes. <sighs> Ma'am, what you've written here is not a confession. It is a recipe. Don't pin that on your Pinterest board. But I'm just <laughs> hoping that an opera is made out of this one day. That's what I want. Bubble, bubble, toil in trouble, wash your cares away. Gypsies tell me that to hell we go if I don't make so. I could go like Rodgers and Hammerstein too. I'm gonna wash that curse right out of my life. I'm oh gonna God. wash that curse right out of my life. Why do I say things? I don't know why you say things. I don't know why she's Russian either. So one of the biggest stories about soap making from human fat comes from World War One. Wait, no stories come from World War One. That was a perfectly sane time. <laughs> I'm gonna make you watch All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm joking. I was thinking of all the episodes we've done that began started in World War One. No angels in this one. Or spiritualist. Unfortunately. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has something to say, I'm almost certain. So rumors have been circulating since nineteen fifteen in France and on the home front that the German war dead were being converted into munitions, animal feed, and soap. So as one soldier put it back then, other folk eat the pigs and poultry. 
So you may say it's cannibalism. Fritz calls his margarine corpse fat because they suspect that's what it comes from. Our dog's name is Fritz. It's because he's an evil German dachshund. So in March, the English language North China Herald claimed the country's president had been horrified when a visiting German admiral boasted the Kaiser's forces were extracting glycerin out of dead soldiers. So that's fat. That means fat. Well, yes. I wouldn't brag about that. So in April of 1917, the Times of London, the Times, the big paper. The paper of record. The British paper of record. (laughs) Published an article titled Germans and Their Dead. No. Revolting Treatment. Science and the Barbarian Spirit. You know, because they have like 10 headlines. Yes, I do know. They're fantastic. Now, so it starts off by quoting a description from a German paper. There is a dull smell in the air as if lime were being burnt. We are passing the great corpse exploitation establishment. The fat that is won here is turned into lubricant oils and everything else is ground down in the bone mills into a powder, which is used for mixing with pig food and as manure. Okay, so that's horrifying. Statement one. Statement two. Exploitation doesn't mean the same thing in this era. It just, it means making use of or exhibiting or reclaim. It's got a different connotation. So that sounds crazy, but knowing the vernacular of the time, this is, it sounds legit. You know, like the, the language is right. Well, so that's from Herr Karl Rosner, who is a special correspondent of a Berlin paper. It goes on to say this version, omitting some of the most repulsive details, is as follows. We have known for long that the Germans stripped their dead behind the firing lines, fastened them into bundles of three or four bodies with iron wire, and then dispatched them grisly bundles to the rear. Until recently... The trains laden with the dead were sent to Sereg, near Liege, and at a point north of Brussels, where were refuse consumers. Much surprise was caused by the fact that of late, this traffle has proceeded in the direction of Gorlstein, and it was noted that on each wagon was written D-A-V-G, which when translated from the German means German Awful Utilization Company. So it's awful. O-F-F-A-L, which means like nasty. means innards. This means nasty. So they are citing a German paper as well as a Belgian-English paper for this information. Now the Daily Mail also has an article titled The Hun's Corpse Factory, Ghoul's Admission, Universal Horror, where the German admission that factories are run for extracting oils, fats, and pig food from the bodies of the German private soldiers killed in battle. And the Daily Express headline, The Kaiser's Ghouls. More horrors of the trade in the sea. Cannibalism. Okay, so, like, you remember a few minutes ago when I was like, that sounds legit, sounds right, the language is appropriate. Forget that. This is propaganda. This is fake news. This is... Maybe. No, this is fake news. It's too good for the British. Too shitty for the Germans. Well, at the time, the British really wanted to get the Chinese into the war. Oh. And awful is the way to do it? Awful stories. Mah. Mah. So, these stories were published in the Chinese papers. 
and China did declare war on Germany on August 14th of 1917. The Chinese ambassador and the Maharaja of Bikaner issued public expressions of horror at German treatment of their dead. The latter warning of the bodies of Indian soldiers were treated in this way. This would be regarded as an atrocity that would never be forgotten or forgiven. Hmm, fair. So in 1925, Sir Austin Chamberlain admitted in a Commons statement that there was never any foundation for what he called this false report. Now, in the same year, the conservative MP, John Strateris, who served as head of intelligence, reportedly admitted, while on a lecture tour of the U.S., that he had fabricated the story. Now, the New York Times... The real paper of record. ...revealed how Charteris said that he had transposed captions from two photographs. So one was a photograph of German bodies on a train. The other one showed a train taking dead horses to be rendered into fat and other things... Right. If you've read Black Beauty, you know that every horse is afraid of becoming glue. That's seriously the driving plot line behind that book. Did you know that? That's why I haven't read it. Yep. And so he took the two captions and flipped them. How did he get away with that? I mean, it wouldn't say like horses. Well, it says cadaver. That means dead body. It means dead animal in German. Uh, Just tricky Germans. So... Charteris reportedly said that he had the caption transposed to the picture showing the German dead and had the photograph sent to Chinese newspapers in Shanghai. But, of course, on his return to Britain, he denied making any of these remarks. It's only true in America. (laughs) So the thing is, about documentation for this super-secret propaganda machine was that everything was destroyed after the war. That is want to happen, yes. But recently, within the Foreign Office files of the National Archives in the UK, they found a cover letter from a military intelligence officer at Whitehall addressed to the Government Director of Information. The letter from MI7 offers the War Office a photograph of cadavers forwarded by General Charteris for propaganda purposes. That's a really damning cover letter. In 1917, MI7 employed 13 officers and 25 paid writers. Now, some of these writers were also special correspondents to all of the major newspapers in the UK. Handy as a pocket on a shirt, that is. And so one of their most talented agents was Major Hugh Pollard, who combined his work in propaganda department with the role of his special correspondent status for the Daily Express. Now, after the war, Pollard confessed his role in spreading the corpse factory lie to his cousin, Ivor. Ivor Montague, who sounds like the worst, like, gothic horror character made up on creepypasta ever. Like a henchman. So, writing in 1970, Montague wrote, How we laughed at his cleverness when he told us how his department had launched the account of the German corpse factories and of how the Hun was using the the myriad of trench war casualties for making soap and margarine. He explained that he had originally thought up the idea himself to discredit the enemy among the population of Oriental countries, hoping to play upon the respect for the dead that goes with their ancestor worship. To the surprise of the authorities... It had caught on, and they were now making propaganda out of it everywhere. The tears ran down his cheeks as he told us the story that he that had circulated of a consignment of soap from Germany arriving in Holland and being buried with full military honors. 
It's not funny. <laughs> it's not funny. But the thing about this story is it is still told. It's still circulated. People will still say in World War I, there were soap factories where they would use the German dead to make soap and glycerin for ammunitions. Well, I mean, the British were very cued into the power of propaganda. I think Angel of Mons can kind of be written off as propaganda as well, and that's from the same era. They recognized the power of public sentiment, and that story, too, still persists. They were very good at their jobs. They were. Know who else was good at her job? Who's that? The bitch of Buchenwald. The bitch of Buchenwald. That's a badass name. (laughs) So, this is another story that kind of got co-opted and propagandized, maybe. But this woman's story has definitely reached legendary status on a variety of different levels, and none of them are wholly positive. Ilse Koch, née Goria, was born in Dresden, Germany in 1906. Her father was a lower middle class factory worker, and she studied to become a librarian and then took work as a secretary before John joining the Nazi party in 1932. Ah, she was stuck in the books. She was one of the early adopters of the Nazi ideology. At this point, only 7% of people in the National Socialist Party were women. And she recognized what the dissolution of the class system under the Weimar government would mean to her specifically because she was a lower class girl, but this provided her social mobility in a whole new way. Just have to be a Nazi. (laughs) Just have to be a Nazi. No big deal. Oh my God. So she was just kind of this wholesome looking, pretty young girl. She wore her red hair bobbed and people would always remark upon the green of her eyes. So she had striking coloring, but she was kind of short, stocky, thing and very pleased with her Germanness. Now, Germany had kind of gotten all up in women's business as the Nazis came to power. They get up in everybody's business. Yes, but they were literally legislating reproduction. Glad we don't do that anymore. Right? Doesn't make sense. So under the Nazi regime, women were kind of forced out of their careers A lot of women had taken on roles. There were a lot of female doctors in Germany. There were female professors, etc. after World War I. But when the Nazis came to power, they were like, bitches back in your kitchens. And so they sent them home and told them that the best thing they could possibly do was to... Have some babies. If they were Aryan. (laughs) Big caveat. If they were not Aryan, this was highly offensive, this practice of having babies. So the Aryan women were encouraged to have Aryan children and... Was she considered Aryan? Yes. I know the red hair. I mean, you could either be visually Aryan or you could be ancestrally Aryan. Oh, right, right, right. I mean, red actually fits perfectly with the Norse. Yes. But I just didn't know. Yeah. I know how much they actually read. Oh, they read a lot. Oh, you're right. They loved it. They loved it. But I mean, think about it. Hitler wasn't blonde and blue-eyed. I know that. <laughs> maybe Which, maybe all the photos are just black and white. Maybe they didn't have color then, as our son thinks. So yes, she was considered Aryan, and that was a good thing for her. Motherhood became the premier front of women. Like, the best thing a woman could possibly do is to have babies. Teddy Roosevelt wrote about this extensively, too, but he's a little bit more likable than Hitler, so we'll let him get away with it. Until we did the eugenics episode. Oh, let's not talk about Teddy that way. Interestingly, I found out in my research that on Hitler's mother's birthday in August each year, women who had had babies would be awarded the cross of motherhood, and there were different designations for the number of children you had. 
after four, you got a bronze. After six, you got a silver. And after eight, you got a gold. And there were also loans given to couples who were deemed racially pure upon their marriage, which was equivalent to about a year's salary at the time. And for each child you had, they would reduce your debt by a quarter. So if you had four children, you never had to repay your loan. Huh. Would they give you a VW van too? Yes. Bring all those kids around in? Yes, a mystery machine. No, they didn't do that. It's the people's wagon. The wagon of these bulk. So, yes, she was lucky because she was Aryan. Also lucky because she did her service year, which women were allowed to do. It was kind of the only career move they were allowed to make in which you would wait and get an assignment from the Nazi regime and they would tell you where you would go and how you would serve them. So a lot of female Nazis were kindergarten teachers and a lot were secretaries and a lot were nurses. These are kind of your three options. And so she was obviously going to be a secretary. Now, while she was busy being a secretary, she met a fine German officer, an SS officer. Oh, this is going to go well. Oh, yes. It will go be like a match made in hell. So she meets and marries Carl Otto Koch in 1936. This is when the bitch meets cock? This is when the bitch meets cock. Just checking. I want to say Coke, just so that people know that it's spelled the same as the Koch brothers, but I'm going to stop myself. Now, this is from Mark Jacobson's book, which we're going to be talking about later. No spoilers. But he describes their marriage thusly. Ilsa and Karl Koch were wed on the verdant grove outside of the falls at midnight. Everything was done according to the protocol set forth in the 1931 Engagement and Marriage Order, aimed at ensuring that SS would remain a hereditarily healthy clan, a strictly Nordic-German sort, and sanctioned by the main office of race and settlement. Karl Koch wore his uniform in a steel helmet. Ilse Koch, in a long white dress, was anointed as a custodian of the race, from whose womb would come forth genetically pure representatives of the glorious evolutionary future. An eternal flame burned in an urn as the betrothed exchanged rings decorated with runic signs. They were given gifts of bread and salt. Very Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Unfortunate For- this didn't turn into the Red Wedding. Those were symbols of fruitfulness and purity. And they were also given a very, very special gift. It was removed from a wooden box and placed in the couple's waiting hands. What could it be? Is it like a skull or something? Is it soap? So Not they, yet. So they can have pure, clean children? Almost. It's a signed copy of Mein Kampf. No. And as you know, that's a symbol of being part of a megalomaniac's Passion play. Fantastic. Yes. So, Carl Koch is given the assignment to construct Buchenwald, oversee the construction of Buchenwald. He's not getting his hands dirty. Let's not kid ourselves. In 1937. So, she and Carl went to Buchenwald, and she became an SS Offenscherin, or overseer. And she was given the rank of senior overseer, and she's the only SS wife who was ever given that title. And so we know that Buchenwald is one of the most notorious concentration centers. Convention centers? Jewish convention center? Wait, Holocaust centers. Holocaust centers. There it is. That's the one. Just want to get it right. So the Cox were very fond of their new appointment, and they were also very creative. And they introduced several inventive forms of torture while they were there. One of them is notorious. It's tree hanging. And prisoners were strapped to 10 feet poles up in the air with their hands behind their necks and were left hanging there sometimes for days. And then there was their own version of waterboarding, which involved a latrine. 
They weren't just torturing prisoners, though. They were taking care of their other duties as well. During their time at Buchenwald, Ilsa gave birth to three children. Artwin, who's a boy, and Gisela and Gerdrun, both girls. Now, there were rumors, rumors, I mean, you know, those pesky camp rumors, that she actually had those children with Dr. Valdemar Hoven, who was a doctor at the camp, because of other rumors that made it necessary for there to be a man that would father children, because the other rumors implied that Carl was actually a homosexual. But most likely, that's just rumor. Most likely. Maybe. They named, like, everybody a homosexual. I mean, they were very fancy. They did know how to dress. Right, like Lemmy? Yeah. From Motorhead? Lemmy is God? Yeah. Trick question? Trick question. You said that all that the villains have the best uniforms? The bad guys always have the best outfits. It's true. Hoven was executed by the Allies later, though. So there was a Buchenwald Jew song. There was a regular Buchenwald song, which was actually written by Jews, but they didn't know that. They Some criminals claimed to have written it, and they accepted it. But then there was a special Jew song as well. And so there were reports that prisoners would be made to stand naked in rows and sing the Jew song until the officers were happy with the way it sounded. And the Jew song goes thusly. For years we wreaked deceit upon the nation. No fraud too great for us. No scheme too dark. All that we did was cheat and swindle, whether with dollar, pound, or mark. But now, at last, the Germans know our nature, and barbed wires hide us safely out of sight. And now, with mournful, crooked Jewish noses, we find that hate and discord were in vain. An end to thievery, to food aplenty, too late, we say again and yet again. The extent that they would go to demoralize people is is sickening. I mean, of course, there's all the physical torture that they would do to the people in concentration camps. But, God, they were just beating them down psychologically as well. And it can't be overstated how much a part of the agenda reorganizing thought processes of the population was. It was absolutely paramount to the entire Nazi agenda. The kindergarten teachers I mentioned earlier were specifically instructed to make sure that children reviled Jewish people and to make sure that the Aryan race was seen as a gift from God that one was lucky to inherit and racial hygiene was taught super early and eugenics were a core part of curricula. Hitler was seen as a Christ-like figure and this is all state top-down education. There's no question that this is happening. Can you imagine just warping a five-year-old's mind like that? No, I can't. And I can't imagine a world where you are not a five-year-old. Like, and you come into this and you see this propaganda and you say, okay, like that just floors me, like even to be on the good end of it, because this wasn't true three years ago. This was not the way we thought three years ago, but now we're just going to accept it. I mean, three years before the Nazis kind of took power and started this psychological twisting of everyone's mind. I think that's the space where I get lost is trying to imagine what it would be like to be a an adult and to see the change. I can understand how the kids brought into it. I mean, they're five. Right. They believe in Santa Claus. I mean, what are you saying? Oh, nothing. <sighs> now my day is bad. Don't worry. Black Pete will come and give you a present. Don't never want that either. <laughs> but you, you excuse the kids, but the adults are taking this on with some agency. So while the juice song is being sung and people are being hung up on the tree poles, the Cokes 
are living in absolute luxury. They had a big estate near the ground called Villa Coq, and the prisoners served there as their domestic servants. Dinner service was always on fine china with fine sterling silver. And those wondering if maybe there will be embezzlement charges later should start taking notes right about now. Now, there are also many reports, and I mean, like, included in the Encyclopedia Britannica reports, that they hosted SS-only orgies at their place. They had orgies at the Villa Cock. Yeah. Just check. Yep. Glad you're on board. So, here's the thing. Carl's ugly. Like, his soul is ugly? No. No, that's not what yes. I but that's not what I mean, but yes, it's true. I don't mean that in a like eventually your exterior will begin to reflect the nature of your into no, none of that. Like I mean he's just not cute. And Ilsa was like pretty cute. I mean as evil SS overseers go. And everyone knew that she was prettier than he was. And he kind of overcompensated for that. So everyone was swiping nine. Carl decided that he should just shower her with gifts. From fine clothes to inlaid wood furniture and diamond rings, mostly made by or stolen from prisoners. If Frau Koch desired to take a bath in Madeira, as she reportedly did, the wine was provided. So, in 1939, thinking his wife might like to ride a horse, Koch commissioned a the construction of a 30,000 square foot private riding hall with mirrored walls and a 60 foot vaulted ceiling, outfitted with dramatic skylights. According to the Buchenwald report compiled shortly after the war by the U.S. Army and former prisoners, as many as 30 prisoners died in the rush to finish the hall, which cost an excess of 250,000 marks. Now, she took up horseback riding while at Buchenwald. This was not a lifelong passion. It was like, maybe, maybe Ilsa wants a horse. I'll get her a horse. Why not? She's gonna need a place to ride it. Outside will never do. She'd seen the fucking atrocities next door. True. So she grew very fond of her white horse and took to riding it around and hitting prisoners with her riding crop. Bitch. Now, during her rides in the hall, the Buchenwald prisoner band would play music for her. For many, this would be the endearing image of Ilsa Koch, provocatively seated atop her favorite steed, usually remembered as Milky White, with a riding crop at the ready, black leather boots to her knee, and all that red hair. Later after the war, there would be much talk of the scantily dressed commandus riding through the camp, stopping only to accuse men of levaciously staring at her breast and her bottom, a crime for which the punishment would be beating to death. There are further reports of the ways in which she earned the title the Bitch of Buchenwald. Mango with don't name your metal band that. An official report into the behavior there revealed one particular incident for which he had become well known to his peers. This is referring to Carl. Prisoners were locked in doghouses, chained by the neck, and forced to lap food from a bowl. Anyone failing to bark when Cook walked by received 25 lashes. He had one prisoner beaten senseless, then ordered guards to stop up his anus with hot asphalt and have him drink castor oil. Holy fuck. This allegedly took place at Columbia House Prison in Berlin, where Carl Koch was an administrator. And later, the story becomes that it was when Ilsa would walk by that they would have to bark. It changes a little. So, her sexuality kind of reached this legendary status, and it's very difficult to separate fact from fiction. Now, there are stories that she would expose herself on the balcony or the villa to benefit SS guards, 
or that she would reveal herself to prisoners by sunbathing close to the perimeter of the camp, and she would allegedly taunt new inmates by stripping herself half-naked and fondling herself. If anyone so much as looked in her direction, even if they only did so once, for their lack of respect, they would be punished with a severe beating. One former prisoner testified that while digging a ditch, he felt or saw someone standing above him with their legs straddling the ditch. When he looked up to see who it was, he recognized Mrs. Cook. She was standing on top of the ditch without any underwear and a short skirt and said, What are you doing looking up here? And with her riding crop, she beat us, particularly my comrade. And she did allegedly have affairs with Dr. Valdemar Hoven, the chief medical officer, and Hermann Forstedt, the deputy commander of the camp. But if you read anything about Cook, you will read that she was fond of fashionable items made of human skin. What? Yes. No. Her hobby was collecting lampshades, book covers, and gloves made from the skins of specially murdered concentration camp inmates and shrunken human skulls. You also read that she is particularly fond of tattooed skin. Now, this is according to Harry Stein, the chief historian at the present-day memorial at Buchenwald. Now, according to Harry Stein, many of the SS wives had become fascinated with the work of the SS camp doctor, Arik Wagner, a former student of race science at the Nazi... No, no, not yeah. science. No. Race science at the Nazi-run Friedrich Schiller University in Jena. Wagner, apparently a dashing sort, was in the middle of compiling a PhD thesis, a contribution on the tattooing question, a report on the relationship between tattooing and criminal behavior. In the process of his research, Wagner and other doctors in the pathology block reportedly began to remove the skin of prisoners with particularly colorful and or lewd tattoos. Inmates would later say that many of these dried and tan tattooed skins were stitched together into gloves, book covers, and lampshades. It was one of these lampshades, Harry Stein said, that was given by Ilse Koch to Karl Koch as a present on his birthday. It was considered the most favorite of all presents given to Karl Koch. All the guests applauded, and it seemed, at the time, a token of love between husband and wife. And the story of this lampshade really did go down in history as a symbol of the Nazi atrocities. How much they were just monsters. And it's become a very highly contested artifact. The first published account of the lampshade story was in Stars and Stripes in April of 1945, nine days after Buchenwald was liberated. Ann Stringer, a UPI correspondent, filed a story from the camp saying that she had seen the lampshade. Two feet in diameter, about 18 inches high, and made of five panels, made from the skin of a man's chest. Alongside were book bindings, book markers, and other ornamental pieces, all made of human skin, too. I saw them today. I could see the pores and the tiny, unquestionably human skin lines. The Stringer story also put forward an account by a Dutch prisoner who stated that Ilsa would have men line up shirtless and inspect their tattoos before choosing the material for her next trinket. Then the chosen would be executed and turned into, you know, a lampshade. So according to one former Buchenwald prisoner, it was a hot day and some of them were working without a shirt and Mrs. Cock arrived on a horse. There was a comrade there. His first name was Jean, who's either French or Belgium and was known throughout the camp for his excellent tattoos that he had from head to toe. I particularly recall a colored cobra on his left arm, winding all the way up to the top, and on his chest there was an exceptionally well-tattooed sailboat with four masts. Even today, I can see them before my eyes very clearly. Mrs. Cock rode over until she came pretty close and had a look at him, and she told him, Let's work faster! And she took his number down. Jean was called to the gate at evening formation. We didn't see him anymore. There are also examples of testimony in the Nuremberg trials, as well as other sources, 
This one does come from the Nuremberg trials. The finished products, i.e. tattooed skin detached from corpses, were turned over to Koch's wife, who had them fashioned into lampshades and other ornamental household articles. And then there's also the testimony of Frank Bla, a Czech doctor who was jailed for being communist and was forced to take part in experiments. It was a common practice to remove the skin of dead prisoners. Many of the Nazis were particularly interested in human skin from human backs and chest. It was chemically treated and placed in the sun to dry. After it was cut into various sizes, it was used for saddles, riding breeches, gloves, house slippers, ladies' handbags. Tattooed skin was especially valued by SS men. Russians, Poles, and other inmates were used in this way, but it was forbidden to cut skin of a German. This skin had to be from healthy prisoners, free from defects. Sometimes we did not have enough bodies with good skin. And Russia would say, All right, we'll get you the bodies. And the next day we would receive 20 or 30 bodies of young people, and they would have been shot in the neck or struck in the head so that the skin would be uninjured. Also, we frequently got requests for skulls and skeletons of prisoners. In those cases, we boiled the skull of a body, and then the soft parts were removed and the bones were bleached and dried and reassembled. In the case of skulls, it was important that they have good teeth. We ordered the skulls. The SS man would say, We will try to get you some good teeth. So it was dangerous to have good skin or good teeth. Some German personnel did confess to taking part in the tanning of human hides and the trade and practice of using the material for domestic items or apparel. One, Commander Zeiss, who had been shot by Americans while attempting to flee in civilian clothing, allegedly admitted to personally killing 4,000 prisoners before he came that Seidler in Gunzen, quote, had human skin specially tanned on which there were tattoos. From this leather, they had books bound and they had lampshades and leather cases made. And some scholars assert that many of the SS officers had lampshades fashioned from human skin. Stefan Hyman, author of Sidelights of the Koch Affair, writes, It is more interesting that Royal Koch had a lady's handbag made from the same material, and she was just as proud of it as a South Sea Island woman would have been of her cannibal trophies. Gotta throw some racism in there. Yep, yep, yep. And this is from Rosenberg, much later in life. But he was the writer of the Buchenwald Report. He said, when we first came to the camp, we were among the very first Americans there, and I had a lot of paperwork to do. There was always a lot of paperwork with S-H-A-E-F. I needed a place to work and sat down at a desk, what I thought was probably some high-up SS man. And I could not have been sitting there very long when a French prisoner came and started shouting at me, saying I was no better than the Germans, that I had no shame. Didn't I know the light I was using to write my reports was a lampshade made of human skin? How could I use that awful light for mere bureaucratic scribbles? I found another place to do my work. There were plenty of talk about Nazis and human skin. I saw wallets and gloves and asked, are these skin? And the answer was almost always yes. And this is the story from Daniel Strauss of his father, Heinz, who he calls Papo, who is a Buchenwald survivor. And they were Romani. It was a woman, the commandant's wife, Frau Kock, Daniel said. She regularly invaded Papo's dreams. More often than not, coming out of nowhere on her horse, riding crop in hand, the lampshade also haunted Papo, Ilse Kock and her lampshades. He died with that woman in his head. So oddly enough, there is a little history of skin taking over the past millennia. So all I can think of is Harold and scary stories to tell in the dark, which I do edit still for my kid. And when he reads it by himself, now that he can read by himself, he's going to be so angry. And he ripped that one out. So the Assyrians would flay their enemies and drape the skin over walls of their city as a warning to others. Now Michelangelo 
painted his self-portrait on a depiction of the flayed skin of St. Bartholomew on the Sistine Chapel in protest of Pope Julius's censorship. That is a highbrow sentence right there. I like it. A 1661 diary entry records that the doors of a cathedral in Rochester were covered with skin of a pirate who had plundered the church. Now, the Harvard Library owns a 17th century English volume bearing the inscription, The binding of this book is all that remains of my dear friend Jonas Wright, who was flayed alive by the Wavuma on the fourth day of August, 1632. The king did give me the book, it being one of poor Jonas's chief possessions, together with ample of his skin to bind it. Rest in peace. And many, many people scalped. All about the scalping back in the day. Well, a lot of people believe that that was something that only Native Americans did, and it's definitely been popularized as a Native American practice. However, there were records of it happening in France, and even the grand old Anglo-Saxons did their share of scalping, which is the practice of taking the skin from the top of the head with the hair still attached. Mm, So the Nazis were just following that tradition. (laughs) It was their birthright. So there is the Aztec deity, Zepatotec, whose name means Our Lord, the Flayed One. He was a late addition in the Aztec pantheon. He did not attain widespread veneration until shortly before the arrival of Cortes and his friendly band of conquistadors. Have a blanket. He was also known as the Night Drinker and the Red Smoking Mirror, and he was usually depicted wearing a coat of freshly severed human skin, symbolic of his status as a fertility god. I don't want to be fertile like that. <laughs> well, celebrating the spring equinox, the ceremonies to him began with the sacrifice of several individuals on stone slabs near the Great Pyramid. Now, victims were slit open with obsidian knives, their skin carefully separated from the body to keep it one single, uninterrupted piece. These skin suits were then dried in the sun and painted yellow to give them an aspect of sacred golden clothes. Priests wore them for a 20-day period during which they engaged in mock battles symbolizing Zipetotec's ethos of change through conflict. When the ritual period ended, the priests took off the now decomposed skin suits as a snake sheds his skin to reveal a new body within. The rotting skins seen as the sacred vehicle of change, were then sealed away in airtight jars in the temple. And of course, we've talked about... Now, speaking of Michelangelo's depiction of himself on St. Bartholomew's skin, there is a statue of St. Bartholomew, completely skinned, where you can see all the musculature and bones with his skin, like, draped around him. Censoring him? A little. Eh, it's ironic, I'd say. But also completely disturbing. And then there's good old Ed Gein. Oh, Eddie. So glad you could stop by. Yeah. He definitely had some things made of human skin. He definitely did. And you know what? He had a lampshade. He did. Do you know why he had a lampshade? Why is that? Because he became fascinated with Ilsa Cook. Of course he did. He was reading pulps about the Nazis and all the atrocities and all the things, and he came across the story of the Lady of the Lampshades, the bitch of Buchenwald herself. I'm sure this was in Man Magazine. Something like that, yes. And he decided, that is a fantastic idea. I'm going to pin that for later, and did. And he had a human lampshade. As we have come back to Ilsa, let's let's finish your story. Now, in 1943, Carl was arrested by the Gestapo. 
Now, you have to be a really shitty guy to be an SS officer and be arrested by the Gestapo. I mean, what did they arrest him for? Not, like, abusive prisoners. They did. Bull. But it was mostly, like, corruption and embezzlement and... That sounds more accurate. The Allied forces were getting very close and they thought maybe good to execute some of the worst ones. So they can't talk. Right. They actually did do that. I know. So he was shot, or executed by firing squad, I guess is the proper thing to say, in April of 1945 at Buchenwald, actually. A poetic ending. Yeah. And at the end of the war, Koch was arrested after being recognized from a, by a former Buchenwald prisoner. She and the children had fled to a nearby village and were trying to hide out. But, I mean, you don't forget that face. I mean, that kind of thing happened a lot. Guards would dress as prisoners to try to escape. Well, she did for a little while, but not long enough. And she was charged with participating in the common criminal plan for encouraging, aiding, abetting, and participating in the atrocities at Buchenwald in 1947. And eventually, an American military tribunal found Koch guilty and sentenced her to life imprisonment. So after serving only two years, she was released on October 17, 1949. General Lucius D. Clay, a military governor of the American Zone in Germany, pardoned her. But this led to an incredible controversy in the U.S., and many politicians' careers were negatively affected by the pardoning of Ilse Cook. As a result of this international condemnation of the decision to pardon her, Koch was rearrested in 1949 and tried before a West German court for instigation of murder in 135 cases. And she was sentenced to life imprisonment on January 15th of 1951. And this sentence is not because she's a woman. There were women who were executed for taking part in the atrocities. So she managed to get by with the life imprisonment sentence in both trials. And this is in part due to the fact that despite being 41 years old at the time of the trial, she was pregnant. She pleaded the belly. She pled the belly. And there were like no men around her. She was in an all-female facility. She was heavily guarded at all times, so no one was quite sure where the baby came from. And she would never, never, never tell. The SS officers would keep cyanide capsules in their teeth, and the females would keep sperm capsules in That's their teeth. That's not just true. Just in case. That's not true. They needed true. to procreate the Aryan race. Well, there were rumors that the father was Jewish, which... God, I want that to be true. But I i mean, I can neither confirm nor deny. So she gave birth at the Landsberg prison in October of 1947. And the baby was a boy and she named him Vui. And a lot of people speculate that he was likely fathered by a fellow prisoner named Fritz Schaefer. But Yui had no idea who his mother was until he read an article about her being denied a pardon when he was 19 and recognized her name from his birth certificate. He'd grown up in foster care. Eventually, she and her son reconnected, and he remained a steadfast believer in her innocence and an outspoken advocate on her behalf. But on September 1st of 1967, she committed suicide by hanging herself with bedsheets in a Bavarian prison and he disappeared from public life after her death. Now, along with all of her, like, kind of softcore, and I'm sure slash hardcore, 
pulp porn appearances and the ways that she has been co-opted by various groups for various reasons. She was also the basis for the character Hannah in The Reader, which is an excellent movie and excellent book. You should probably pause, go watch it. Definitely. So, I mean, without a doubt, the story of the lampshade and the human flesh. Paraphernalia. Yeah, bag, especially. The bag and the lampshade are the two that you really hear about. I mean, these stories are told over and over and over again Mm -hmm. without much proof behind them. Well, there was the table. What table? The table at Buchenwald. Hmm? Well, after the camp was liberated, the Allies under Patton marched the Weimar people through Buchenwald to see the atrocities. And on a table, they had two shrunken heads and some preserved organs and a lamp with a lampshade made of human skin. And this is where this comes from. So there are pictures of the lampshade with people parading by it. And it's even in the Holocaust Museum without a caption. But there is the table. What's the table? The table at Buchenwald where this with is all the stuff with all it. the stuff set up. Know. And you can find images of this, you know, in reputable places. But yeah, it's definitely questioned because the lamps along with the handbags, gloves, breeches, riding, boots, saddles, reins, crops, crops, gloves, hats, I'm sure there was a hat. Like all of that disappeared. So another story that passed around at this time during World War Two calls back to a few things we've been talking about. So on the morning of Wednesday, September 2nd, 1942, the teletypewriter at the Polish Embassy in D.C. declared, According to recently received authentic information, the German authorities have evacuated the last ghetto in Warsaw. Stop. Bestially murdering about 100,000 Jews. Stop. Mass murder. Continue. Stop. From the corpses of the murdered, soap and artificial fertilizers are produced. Stop. Stop. It's a telegram. I was telling you to stop. (laughs) It's terrible. And true? Well, it's hard to say. You know, at the time, people were very concerned. Like, is this true? I mean, they... World War One was not that long ago. They remember these rumors. So when this came through, had the camps been liberated? My timeline's fuzzy. No, 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 no. Oh. 42. So this is 42. an early rumbling of a Holocaust. Yes, because there were a lot of early rumblings that were dismissed. And so Lord Halifax. Fired up the old propaganda machine? The Lord Halifax later wrote in his diary, I wonder whether this horror is true. A good deal more likely to be true, I fancy. Than it was in the last war. Now, Rabbi Stephen Weiss, who is the head of the World Jewish Congress and the American Jewish Congress and President Roosevelt's advisor for Jewish affairs, in a press conference on November 24th of 1942, pronounced that the manufacture of war vital commodities as soap, fats, and fertilizer from the bodies of the slain Jews as a fact vouched for by the U.S. State Department. And now this, of course, took off in the media around the world, with Weiss even writing a kind of opinion piece in the New York Times. The paper of record. Now this idea, as I'm sure it strikes you, is extremely atrocious, even struck Himmler that way. He read the article. Wait, are you about to tell me that Himmler had a conscience for a minute? Was it a hot minute? It was a hot minute. All right, let's hear it. 
but he had read the article by Rabbi Weiss purporting that Jews were being exterminated and their fat used for soap and bone used to make fertilizer. And he wrote to the head of the Gestapo, Mueller, saying, In view of the large immigration movement of Jews, I do not wonder that such rumors come to circulate in the world. We both know that there is present an increased mortality among the Jews put to work. You have to guarantee to me that the corpses of these deceased Jews are either burned or buried at each location, and that absolutely nothing else can happen with the corpses at any location. Conduct an investigation immediately, everywhere, whether any kind of misuse of corpses has taken place of the sort as listed in point one, probably strewn about in the world as a lie. Upon the SS oath, I am to be notified of each misuse of this kind. Did he get any reports? Not that I know of. Now, of course, this does not, like, say that Himmler has a contest or anything. He's like, oh, wait, but just burn them or bury them. Just don't make them out of soap. Just don't make them into soap. What a weird line. It is a weird line. Like, kill as many as you need to. No worries. Just don't wash with them. Now, in 1942, Policy Square, the American Council at Geneva in Switzerland, sent out a memo saying that, that these ideas incorporated stories which were obviously left over from the horror tales of the last war. The ones that were making people laugh so hard that they cried. Those tales. Burying the soap. Yes. Okay. So it's easy to dismiss because last time it wasn't true. Exactly. This is the story that cried wolf. Now the human soap rumors may have originated from bars of soap being marked with the initials R-I-F. What does RIF have to do with anything? Well, so people thought it meant Reichsjudenfett, state Jewish fat, in mm. German black letter font. Now, in the German black letter font, which was stamped, there's a difference between the I and the J is only in its length. Because mm. it's just a classic Gothic font. Right. So RIF actually stands for, in translation, National Center for Industrial Fat Provisioning. Which is a terrible name. Well, yes, but what do you expect? So the RAF soap was a very poor quality, and it actually did not contain any fat at all. Mm. But now these stories were circulating so heavily. Now the complete black book of Russian jewelry, I didn't name it, one of the earliest Oh my god, you said jewelry, not jewelry wrong. Yeah. Okay. One of the earliest collections of first-hand accounts of the Holocaust, assembled by Soviet writers, have, has a specific story as part of the report titled The Extermination of the Jews of Lvov, attributed to I. Hertz and Naftali Nakat. In another section of the Balzac camp was an enormous soap factory. The Germans picked out the fattest Jews, murdered them, and boiled them down for soap. Now, they're saying that the person that's telling the story even held the Jewish soap in his own hands. Now, that most likely is RAF soap, but the Nazis were fine with this story, saying the Gestapo thugs never denied the existence of a production process of this kind. Whenever they wanted to intimidate a Jew, they would say to him, we'll make soap out of you. So the same thing that the Georgia mothers are telling their children. Yeah. So there is a story, a short story that's still taught in Poland called Professor Spanner that tells the story of the soap production, but it's in a specific spot called the Danzig Anatomical Institute. Is that a real thing? It is. Okay. 
Now, after the Soviets freed the area, if you can call that. Uh-huh. I don't want to be freed by Soviets. Let's just... The Soviets and Poles heard about these rumors that the Danzig Anatomical Institute, they were making soap from human fat. Now, this was a place where they would macerate bodies to get their skeletons for anatomical study. Now, immediately after the capture of Danzig by the Red Army at the end of March 1945, the new Polish authorities took stock of the Germans' estate. Now, of course, the institute had been abandoned by the German scientists at the end of January 1945. And when they went to investigate, they found that in the morgue and in the massatorium, hundreds of corpses and body parts in various stages of decomposition were rotting away in tanks and vats. The whole premises were badly vandalized. Everywhere, laboratory equipment, parts of human skeletons, chemicals, books, and paper lay scattered around as both scientists remembered years later. But the most shocking discovery made were pieces of whitish or grayish mass, which former employees told them was soap made from human fat. Both scientists then informed the authorities of what they had found. So are we calling this Russian disinformation or do we believe it? Well, it's hard to say. Let's see. So a former employee presented them with two bars of soap which he said had been produced there. And he told the commission about former lab assistant Zygmunt Manzer, who participated in the production of soap. So they quickly found and arrested him and threw him in Gdansk prison. Now, whenever they were searching, they found a recipe for the making of soap from fat remainders. Now, Manzer confessed to making soap using the recipe, and he later confessed that he himself had washed with his soap, and that his mother had used it for laundry. Now, this confession and the soap recipe was presented at the Nuremberg trials. The Soviets felt this proved that the Anatomic Institute of the Danzig Medical School, the Germans had not only produced dozens of kilograms of soap from human body fat, but were even about to do so on a mass scale. Now, the prosecutor stated that from February 1944 until January 1945, under Professor Rudolf Spanner, quote, semi-industrial experiments in the production of soap from human bodies were carried out. The samples which I now submit prove that the process of manufacturing soap was already completely worked out in the Institute of Danzig. Only the victorious events of the Red Army put an end to the new crimes of the Nazis. So it's very hard to prove or disprove something that almost happened. Like, it almost happened. They were almost going to do it on an industrial scale. But they did do it. So, again, with that in mind, I'm still not sure on my sources. I'm just nervous about Russian fake news. What can I say? And that's a really good point. We've talked about it before about the Nuremberg confessions and things like that and you know if they're forced if they're forced by the russians good really good um, interrogation techniques advanced one might say but the british investigated it too and they found two british pow's that worked at the danzig institute john henry witten and william anderson neely now neely spoke of a separate treatment of the fatty portions of corpses treated with some acid in a crude enamel tank heated by a couple of Bunsen burners. Both witnesses stated that from the tank, a certain substance was attained, which, after cooling, was cut into blocks and used for cleaning purposes in the Institute. 
Now, in 2001, the IPN, which is an organization that kind of looks into these kind of war crimes and things, re-examined the information. And they concluded that there was no mass production, but, quote, it was a kind of experiment, disgusting, immoral, but certainly it was not a matter of genocide with the aim of producing soap. Okay, that's very key. That's a very interesting point. Because it's not like they were killing people to make soap. They were like, we have all these dead people. What do we do with them? But does it make it much better? <laughs> it's not better, but it's an interesting... No, I actually think it makes it worse. I, I, I think it makes it much worse. It's not like we're... It's not survival cannibalism. It's we've killed so many people we don't know what to do with them. Surely there must be a practical use, which I think is much worse. It's terrible. Now, interestingly, Spanner was not put on trial for this. Rudolph Spanner? Because of that, because they were already dead. (sighs) Now, the soap was tested by Poland's National Remembrance Institute, and they announced that it did indeed contain human fat. And that was from the samples at the Hague that were presented at the Nuremberg trials. So this is specifically from the Danzig Institute. Yes. In this one place, there's there's the fatty substance. There's the POWs who say it. There's the Russians who say it. There's the British who say it. There's the testing that says it. This is sounding pretty credible. Right. And an important point is where these bodies come from. Because the Germans involved are very adamant that they were from a mental hospital or from prisons, but there's paperwork showing that there were bodies sent from the Stuhoff death camp. So that would have been any of the marginalized groups who were interred. I don't know if taking it from a mental asylum is necessarily better, but I see what they're doing. It would make it a war crime. Ah. Ah. So Deborah Lestat, who is a, a Holocaust historian... Noted that one museum, the Chamber of the Holocaust on Mount Zion in Israel, actually displays a bar of soap reportedly made by the Nazis from the human fat. Lipstead says she knows of no other museum with such a display. Now, the Virginia Holocaust Museum in Richmond does show footage of a Russian film that was played at the Nuremberg trial, showing Russian soldiers coming upon a skeleton in a vat at the Natsk anatomical institute for which it was deduced that the nazis used human fat to make soap so at what point do we say there's proof this is so hotly contested it's very controversial extremely now previously there had been ceremonies with burial of jewish soap because it's very customary in their culture to bury all of the human remains one bar of soap was buried at the base of Atlantis Cemetery's Holocaust Memorial in 1970. In 1948, four bars wrapped in a funeral shroud were ceremonially buried according to Jewish religious ritual at the Hifa Cemetery in Israel. But most likely this soap was of the RIF soap origin. Mm-hmm. But being that it is so hard to prove this, even with all the testimony, even with the studies of it, it's still hotly contested because they're saying, oh, well, no, that's just the RIF soap. It's not real. And it is used as an example by revisionists. By Holocaust deniers? Yes. That this is something that's been disproven. This is something that's not real. And if this isn't real, then none of it's real. Well, it's difficult because it is sort of, it's loaded. It's just a loaded phenomenon. Because you do have the RIF soap, which is not credible. And then you have this instance of a very specific case in which they were found to have 
good evidence. And it's much easier to make a blanket generalization that casts dispersions on a larger, nuanced picture than it is to take the time and understand the differences in two cases. It is easier to say, no, that didn't happen, than yes, but. And unfortunately, unfortunately, and in a weird way, there's a long history, a long heritage of these kind of stories. There are folk tales, there are boogeymen, there are all sorts of things from all over the world that kind of give them this weird sort of ammunition, like saying, like, it's too horrible to be true. It's the thing that's used to scare people. They're just trying to scare you into believing it. Right, and they were able to cite the old extreme 100% fake story from World War One, mm-hmm. and say, well, this can't be real, even though it's maybe not 100% fairly credible evidence that it occurred on a small scale. Right. But they are able to, like you said, take those stories and take those, those kind of folk legends that are being told around. And say, this is just another scary story. In a case of those tales told around the campfire and among people has happened more recently. So in Peru, there is a folkloric figure called a fish taco. I think that sounds great. Maybe. I don't know. It's not a fish taco. I thought it was pistachio when I read it the first time. Let's be real. So I'm cool calling him that. I tried to Google the pronunciation. Nothing came up. So we're going with fish taco. Fish taco. Pistachio's cousin. So these creatures are described as half-white ghouls who live in caves, lurk along dark, isolated roads, and suck the fat out of anyone careless enough to travel Indian roads at night. The Indian myth holds that the fat is used to make soaps, lubricants, healing potions, and cosmetic creams. Ungents. So... It's, of course, used in similar ways to soap Sally to you know, scare kids and make them behave. And maybe eat their vegetables and not so many cakes. Yeah, as all good parents do. From Leonardo. Yeah, do not eat her tea cakes. Even if this new batch was really good. I've perfected it. Interestingly, it's also used as a cultural warning. Like, you've seen in past stories we've talked about. You now, its origins may have been the practice of colonizing Spanish soldiers who took the natives fat to help heal their wounds in the 18th century. Wait, that really happened? According to... Okay, got it. So 18th century, they began to start to appear as priests with a knife, and then it became a man on horseback or in a powerful car. And in the 1980s, when rural residents were moving to the city, they reappeared as sacojos, which are white medical technicians in dark suits who steal and dismember children. We just went through like five episodes we've done. Well, I think it's interesting because it's always like whatever is imbued with power. It's the most powerful group at the time. When you're with your own people, it's the people who look different from you. And then as new people come and things change, you have to give them some visible marker of status. So it's the priest, then it's the man on a powerful horse, then a man in a powerful car, and then it's the medical man. Because we all know to be suspicious of medical men. Looking at you, kid. That's right. So you see in a headline, November 21st, 2009, arrest made in ring that sold human fat, Peru says. Because arrest made in pishtaco ring just doesn't have the same ring to it. Also, like it's as Peru says, like that person. All of Peru says it. So General Felix Merga has claimed to have arrested four members of an international criminal network trafficking human fat. Why? 
the gang has carried out between 30 and 60 murders a year. They were killing people in order to extract their fat and sell it to cosmetic companies in Europe. Is there really a shortage of fat? Like that's the thing. I'm, maybe in Europe. Maybe okay. I'm thinking Amer. I'm thinking American. We so got plenty. We've got plenty. And I guess if you're Europe, you need to import fat from fucking Peru. Okay, I'm on board. Keep going. They should come to America. America. So these gang members were supposedly getting fifteen thousand dollars a liter. This is just not true. There are people having liposuctions. Oh, no, 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 but he says, this is a quote. From Peru? Yeah, Peru says, we are not making this up. Okay, well. They have confessed to this. That's what's coming out now. The fat's coming out now? The fat trafficking. The truth. So supposedly one of the suspects told officials he'd been committing the murders for five years. According to a criminal complaint, Sons Kiros filed... Officials discovered a small container containing a fat-like substance that had been stored at the bus station in Lima. Which is the capital of Peru, which says... Lab tests are being performed to determine what the substance is. Now, journalists were told how victims were approached on remote roads and lured to a hut in the jungle. There, the police claimed they were bludgeoned to death. Heads, arms, and legs were cut off, the police had claimed. Major organs were removed and discarded... Because who needs those? They're not... Like kidneys. Yeah. And candles were placed beneath the torsos so the melting fat would dribble into pots and other collecting vessels. Okay, so one from the words claims and they say, and Peru says, I'm gleaning that we're not giving a ton of credibility to this, also to your giggles. December 2nd, so like less than two weeks later, Okay. Peru's police chief was forced to sack his top organized crime investigator amid growing evidence that he and several colleagues deliberately invented the elaborate story to cover up evidence of officers being involved in dozens of extrajudicial killings. Oh, honey, no. Now, one of the reports earlier on, they were asking dermatologists if they used human fat for anything. <laughs> So New York dermatologist Barry Goldman said he had never heard of human fat being sold on the black market. The idea that anybody would use an injectable where you didn't know where it came from would be laughable if it weren't unethical and potentially dangerous. He went on to say, but they steal kidneys, so why not this? It is sick, but in the Holocaust, they did use skin for lamps. Oh, the skin for lamps. The skin for lamps in the Holocaust. Did they? It's a really good question. Well, we know that they most likely, at least on an experimental level, did make soap from dead people. So I want to look into this question. I want to give it space and let it be important for a second. And let us really kind of question whether or not lampshades were made out of human skin during the Holocaust. But maybe more importantly, why it matters. That's the kind of questions we like to ask. They are. And try to answer. A little. But this is going to be a journey. And like all journeys of any import, it begins in New Orleans. Of course it does. On the mighty Mississippi. Yes. Exactly. Powdered is behind. So immediately following Hurricane Katrina in 2005, Mark Jacobson, a reporter for The New Yorker, gets a call from his buddy, Skip Henderson, who's gone back to New Orleans with the first wave of returning evacuees after the hurricane. So Skip tells him this story. He was looking for a drum, but it wasn't until he left Ron Foreman's rally to cross the street that he realized he'd been searching for a particular drum. 
This one. It was a fairly new-looking Yamaha drumhead, and Skip recognized a brown-green stain immediately. He'd been looking at variations of it for months while driving around the ruined city. It was a waterline, the gauge by which the height of the toxic flood could be measured. A malevolent citywide bathtub ring. You know, some people have that line painted in their house if it was flooded. We Louisianans have an interesting relationship with tragedy. There were replica Katrina crosses made from all different metals to be hung on houses to replace the spray-painted ones when they were renovated. Well, they were X's originally. Oh, they're called a Katrina cross. They are X's. I know, I know. But so he sees this drum, and he wants the drum with the water line because he's part of this group called the Bone Boys, which is a Mardi Gras group that goes out and talks about, you know, everyone's infinite mortality around Mardi Gras time. And he thought that this would be a great drum to have to bang on his Mardi Gras raids and rides to remind people of, you know, the oncoming threat of death. So as he's having this existential moment, he walks across and speaks to the man who is selling this drum. And it's a skinny white guy with no teeth who just looks, from my own estimation, methy. Oh, I got a visual. Yep. You know that guy. That guy in New Orleans? Yes. Yeah. And so he wants Skip to take all of the junk that he has put together on the street corner for $100. And, the, and Skip's like, nah, I just want that drum, but I'll give you $100 for it. The guy says, no deal. And Skip's walking away, and the guy calls out, wait, man, I know you. Your neighbor. I have something special for you. And he shows him this lamp and tells him it's $35. Skip, That's a lot for a lamp. Well, Skip says, what's this thing made of, anyhow? And the guy says, it's made from the skin of Jews. What? That's what Skip says. Hitler made it from the skin of Jews. Believe me, neighbor. Hitler made it from the skin of Jews. It's a historical fact. Okay, if that was going to be hiding anywhere, it would be in an attic in New Orleans. I kind of agree. Jacobson... Mark Jacobson, the friend who he's called, says, that's a weird story, Skip. And Skip says to him, well, it's not my problem anymore. I just mailed it to you. You're a journalist. You figure it out. Good friend. Thanks for mailing me that. Now, Jacobson is a Jewish writer for The New Yorker who gets this lampshade in the mail and thus begins the journey of The Lampshade, which is an excellent book that he wrote around 2010. He decides that it is his charge and his duty to go forward and find out whether or not this is actually a lampshade made out of Jew skin. And he decides to do this because as a kid on the playground, people would threaten to make him into a lampshade when they got into verbal spats. And it was a common epithet and it was a widely known legend. And he wanted to find out if there was any truth behind it. So he begins his journey by going to visit Shia Rubowski, who is a medical examiner and forensic pathologist, and also a cantor at a synagogue. He was one of the leading coroners during the 9-11 aftermath, and he said working in the medical examiner's office at that time was, quote, about as close to Auschwitz as I will ever get. In speaking about 9-11, Rubowski says, in this world we will do anything to isolate ourselves from the dead, to pretend that these are are two completely disconnected states. 9-11 removed that barrier. So many of the people killed that day were simply pulverized and turned to dust. They were there in that cloud that hung over ground zero. They became the very air that we breathe. But while holding the lamp in his hand, he shook his head and said, this is the saddest thing I've ever seen. I can't imagine actually holding it. Well, and to think that this guy had been putting together 
body part jigsaw puzzles for months after 9-11. Like he had seen every piece of human that came in and holding this. He's like, this is a different level of depravity. And so he encouraged Jacobson to allow him to take samples and send them to Bode Laboratories and have DNA testing done. And Jacobson agreed and paid the $5,000 for the testing. A little while later, a man from the lab called and announced that with 100% certainty, the lampshade was... Human? Of human origin. Holy shit. So cut to, Jacobson has told Skip Henderson that the Nazi lampshade that he mailed him, because he didn't want to deal with it anymore, has been tested and is verified to be of human origin. And if you're Skip Henderson, and you're in New Orleans, and no one else is... And you know this guy sold you this lampshade, and you need to get a little more information out of him. What do you do? Well, you go knock on his door and ask him. (laughs) That's exactly what Skip does. He had found out that the man who sold him the lampshade was David Dominici. And he was sort of infamous in New Orleans because he had been a cemetery bandit. The cemetery bandit, in fact. Oh, God, that is... His not good juju in New Orleans. No, he had taken marble angels and Doric columns, etc., from the vaults in like the Metairie Cemetery and the big cemeteries in New Orleans. Who is buying this? They're gonna have such bad juju. They don't know where it comes from. He's he's got a fence somewhere, I'm sure. And he had developed a really nasty reputation as a result of this. Because if there's one thing you do not do in New Orleans, it's fuck with dead people. You don't fuck with dead people. It's not allowed. So Dave comes to the door and he's hiding a pistol in folded newspaper. So Jacobson describes, still, you couldn't just lay a human skin lampshade on a guy along with all those sleepless nights and then claim to have forgotten all about it. Skip says, the lampshade, the damn lampshade. It's made out of a person. A person? A human being. They did DNA testing on it in a lab. It's human. Human? I knew it. I knew it was true flesh. So it was not long before it came to light that Dave Dominici had visited the Piety Street home. The hole in his kitchen door now covered a pair of nailed-down exterior doors. Dominici was something of a local celebrity. He claimed to be the most hated man in New Orleans. I'm sure he was. He also kept a scrapbook of all the clippings. These are all about me, he said. There were dozens of articles. Stolen artifacts could run into the millions, and cemetery thief pleads guilty. So did he fess up to where he got it from? Oh, it took a minute. It took a hot minute. I'm not surprised. He gave him, like, a series of bad leads, and after following up on them, they'd come back and be like, David, they didn't know what you were talking about, David. David, that name didn't check out. David, that person never existed. No, David. No, David. So finally he fesses up that he looted it from an abandoned home during Katrina. And Mark goes to the address and finds this young Creole girl sitting on the porch swing with a baby in her arms. And he tries to explain about the lampshade in the most delicate way possible because he is accusing her of having a Nazi lampshade in her house or in her grandma's house or whatever. And then he describes, the baby started to fuss and the girl gave me a look like she'd lived a thousand years. If she lived to be a thousand She'd never understand why white people say and do the things they do. You're looking for something that used to be a person, she said. People I know, they're looking for people that are still people. Oh, damn. Because nobody could find anyone. This is after Katrina. And here he is asking about this holy relic, you know, when people can't find their kids or their cousins or their grandmas. Like, 
people are missing. Families are separated. It's kind of this weird moment for him when he realizes he's not going to get any further with her. And he decides to kind of go another way with it. And so he goes to Sotheby's because, of course, he does. That's the exact opposite. Yes. And he talks to a couple of people who own, like, antique lighting stores in New York and things like that. And from all the reports that he gets, everyone agrees that it's Central European in origin. However, they tell him that they believe that the fringe on the lamp was probably attached later. A little bit later, his friend Skip calls from New Orleans again to say that he's remembered something really incredible about the fringe. He says that the tassels on the lampshade are Mardi Gras colors. Definitely added in New Orleans. And Jacobs has said, it is remarkable what you don't notice. Skip was right. The tassels were faded, not garish and plastic bright like the beads the masked men would throw at you from passing floats. But they definitely were green, gold, and purple. Green, gold, and purple in that order all the way around. So what did that mean? That the unknown individual, the surreptitious stitcher, the one who put the tassel on, had a really sick sense of humor? Who knew? If anything, it did seem certain, however. Dave Domenici the Cemetery Bandit's assertion, was right when he said that the lampshade had come from the storm. Without Katrina, it would never have come to light. It looked like the churn of Katrina's double, double toil and trouble dredge, the Nazi lampshade up from the underground. So then Skip calls him a few days later to relate the story of a mental breakdown he had while in St. Louis Cathedral. Oh God, a few people have had that. And he just feels that he has to keep lighting candles said suddenly he felt connected with everyone who had died in the Holocaust. Wow, that's some Catholic guilt. <laughs> it is absolutely Catholic guilt. And he said he must have lit 40 candles before he kind of came to and realized what he was doing when the tourists behind him started getting angry, as they are wont to do when they want to light candles in St. Louis Cathedral. <laughs> I didn't know that was a popular tourist attraction. And so he goes outside and sits down on a bench and, like, has to collect himself. But he's starting to have all these nightmares about lampshades and, like, feeling like the floodwaters of Katrina are made out of lampshades. And it gets really dark around this time. And so Mark decides that he's going to check out the black market value of a human lampshade. As you do. You do. So he calls around to see... You know, what is connections? No. And this is the guy who wrote American Gangster, so I think he has some connections. But they all kind of pick up on the fact that he's not actually going to part with this thing. And so they don't really go forward with their inquiry too much. And one of them, Steve, says, This could be like the Holy Grail, you know. The Holy Grail of evil. These things are pretty rare. At least I've never seen one, not a real one. And for his yet undetermined 30 to 50% finder's fee, he would put out the word and try to get a couple of collectors bidding against each other. For argument's sake, I told Steve I didn't want to sell the lampshade to a neo-Nazi. There was no problem with that, he said. Those jerk-offs are lucky if they have enough cash to buy a carton of cigarettes. They're not in the market. They read two pages of Mein Kampf and go on some websites and then are goose-stepping all over the place until the meth runs out. Sick burn. But Steve had another sore person in mind. He's like maybe 60, loaded, and lives in a big house south of Monterey. He comes in the room, sweet as can be, wearing a sweater like Mr. Rogers and smoking a hand-carved pipe. His tobacco pouch is made out of a human breast. I know, because my friend sold it to him. Some people are just sick like that. The guy was pretty creepy, Steve allowed, saying that he made me nervous, which is something, because I'm the kind of individual who makes everyone nervous. Maybe I can get him bidding against a Marilyn Manson, Steve conjectured with a laugh. So it became clear to Mark that he was not going to let the lampshade go on the black market. 
So he starts thinking on it and trying to figure out what his next step might be, if not selling to either Mr. Rogers or Marilyn Manson. And he thinks, you know. Because those are the choices. They really are. Like, that's that's probably not an overstatement. But he thinks, like, maybe a museum. Maybe this would be a nice thing to give to a museum. And so he decides to go with the the top-of-the-line Holocaust Museum, the one in D.C. And he meets with Diane Saltzman. He says, in the Queen's schoolyard of the 1950s, the decades before museums and Schindler's List, the lampshade was our holocaust. The show of, we knew, the lampshade and its succubus bitch of Buchenwald enabler, Ilsekok, were in the news every day and deemed worthy of convening a special select committee of the United States Congress. Six decades later, having vanished from the table at Buchenwald and missing at Nuremberg, never scientifically proven to be real, Lampshade had become an unmentionable ghost, a dibbick, written out of the Holocaust. That is because it's a myth, says Diane Saltzman, the former head of collections at the USHMM. And so he tells her, no, look, I did. I had this tested, and it's human. You know, all the DNA tests are conclusive, and it's human. But she's not really moved by that. As far as she's concerned... The lampshade was like soap, which is also unproven. It would become a familiar refrain, this coupling of lampshades with the stories about how Germans had engaged with mass production of soap from Jewish bodies. Back in Queens, we all knew about the soap. It was the story. It was the story that went around, the lampshade and the soap. So the idea that people could be made into soap carried such stigma that when the first camp survivors immigrated to Palestine in the late 1940s, the established Zionist settlers, not enthralled to see the present newcomers, derogatorily referred to them as sabon or soap. So Saltzman put an abrupt halt to the notion that they would help with testing. We wouldn't be interested in accepting such an object and we would never display it, she said. We are an educational institution. It has no educational value whatsoever. Jacobson said, You're saying, even if it's real, it has no educational value. She says, This is a museum dealing with the Holocaust. This object cannot be proved to legitimately be part of the Holocaust, so we cannot treat it as such. Sixty-odd years of research has never been proved that a thing like this was Nazi policy or practice. What about the stories about the lampshade? Everyone knows about it. That doesn't make it at least worth talking about. Not from my point of view of a museum, Diane Saltzman had about run out of patience. What I'm saying is that even if you could prove its reality, even if you could prove it was made out of the skin of a Buchenwald prisoner from 1943, which you can't, it would still not be part of the practice of the Holocaust. It would only be an isolated incident, the work of extreme individuals. Jacobson replies, The whole thing is pretty extreme, wouldn't you say? Was Saltzman saying that if a lone lunatic SS man, some Ed Gein-style Nazi, had made a lampshade that would fall under the heading of a personal rather than institutional psychopathy and therefore would not fall within the purview of the august organizations like National Museum? Listen, all I'm trying to do is find out what it is. I already told you what it is. It's a myth. Even if you could document it 100%, it would still be a myth. What? Oh, that's such a great line. Because it is, even if it's truth. It's gone down in the folklore and the modern zeitgeist of the Jewish population, anyone that reads about the Holocaust. It almost has to be a myth. 
Because we're insisting that the rest is true. If that makes sense. Like, it's like, that's a, again, it's such an arbitrary line. It's like Himmler's line. You know, it's this weird place that we've decided to cut it off. It's like, no, they weren't used for crafts. Like, why is that that much worse? I don't, I don't know. As Jacobson continues to think about Saltzman's reaction to his announcement that he has a lampshade made out of human skin, he recalls these accounts from American GIs who were involved with the liberation of the camps. He cites Harry Snodgrass, who is a man from Tennessee, who says, It was in the commander's office, lampshades made out of the skin of Jews. Or Warren Priest, who said, I saw lampshades made out of human skin. The commandant of the post collected these as a hobby. Or Rudy Baum, who said, lampshades and library book covers were made from tanned human skin. Or Margaret Bork White, whose Life magazine photos established much of the visual record of the camp. She saw skins from lampshades. In a report dated April 27, 1945, Georges Vanier, a Canadian ambassador to France, wrote, A lampshade was found, and I saw this. It was made from human, tattooed skin. So in considering all this, he decides to go and talk to another official. And this is Berenbaum, who is a Holocaust scholar who was formerly associated with the museum in Washington. And he tells him about his conversation with Saltzman, and Berenbaum responds, I don't know if in the presence of a DNA report, I would have said it was a myth, but I agree with Diane Saltzman. These types of objects are a distraction. They are a form of pornography because people focus on them to the exclusion of everything else. And Jacobson says, but if they exist, you can't ignore them, can you? What should be done about them? And Berenbaum really just struggles with what to tell him. And he says, I don't know what to tell you, but maybe this will help. Maybe not. But when we were first making the museum, I acquired a number of canisters that had contained Zyklon B, who was referring to the cyanide-based pesticide with which the SS gassed people. At the time, I thought it would be no big deal. It was just another distressing exhibit. But there was a problem. Someone thought the canisters were still dangerous, and they called the EPA, who got all excited. These things were 50-odd years old at the time. They'd been opened, exposed to air. They were harmless. But convincing anyone of that. It was just the name, Zyklon B, the idea, that label, was the same. That was enough. It was the symbol. No one wanted to be near these things. I was in charge, so I got stuck with them. And they were delivered to me, and I put them in my garage until we could have them tested and prove they weren't dangerous. And let me tell you, that night, the whole time those things were in my garage, was a very long night. It was enough to send someone to psychotherapy. Yes, I mean, I think he's just pointing out that it doesn't... It almost doesn't matter if it's real or not. Just the thought of it. What it can bring up in people's minds is dangerous. Even if it's been exposed to air. Even if the weapon is gone. So continuing his quest, after speaking to Berenbaum, the next logical stop is a Holocaust denier. Is that the next logical stop? I think it is. is it? I think maybe. Okay. So, yes. So he goes to speak with, quote, denier bud. Is that like his... Twitter handle? It's his YouTube name. Of course it is. Who's a YouTube personality and a documentarian. So, Denier Bud had made a saga that really focused on Ilse Koch and the lampshade story. And his saga is called Vukenwald, a dum-dum portrayal of evil. So, he shows footage of the Weimar residents finally past the Vukenwald table. And 
comes on and refutes the old newsreel footage. Now, he disputes that she was probably not involved with the atrocities, and by the time the Americans liberated the camp, Ilse Koch hadn't been at Vuchenwald for at least a year and hadn't been in any position of power for much longer than that. So Koch's absence was stemmed in large part from the investigation of Morgan, a renowned bloodhound judge of the SS, the supposed straight shooter in charge of rooting out corruption in the Nazi elite. It was Morgan who had brought Karl Koch to trial and presided over his execution, but it turned up no evidence against Ilse Koch, quitting her of all charges. So Bud says that this clears her of any wrongdoing because no one ever found any objects like those shown on the table. Because the SS judge said there was no... Good source, bro. Yeah, good source, bro. Um, At least he cited his sources. <laughs> and then he goes on to say that the lampshade is product placement and the product is dumb, dumb, evil. The kind of evil that can be manipulated for whatever its creator wants to use it for. And somehow this is all connected to, you know, Zionist and Goldman Sachs and all of it. Basically just sing the juice song. So in the same vein... Jacobson brings up some exchanges that happened, you know, kind of after Schindler's List was released in the year which Bill Clinton dubbed the year of the Holocaust and so on. So Shermer, who is a skeptic of the Holocaust, went on in front of a studio audience to confront a Holocaust survivor. Why? Don't do that. Well, he was trying to, you know, disprove the soap thing. So in 1994... He's trying to explain that it's, you know, just a flourish, just some good storytelling. And it was a mistake that was made. Unfortunately, there's a woman in the front row who stands up and says, it was true. They made lampshades and they cooked soap. That's true. And so he turns to her and this woman named Judith Berg and says, excuse me, but historians make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. Then he attempts to make his case for refining our knowledge. But another denier jumps in and says, why are they doing this to this woman? Why have they taught this woman to believe that Germans cooked and skinned? And Judith Berg jumps out of her chair and says, I was seven months in Auschwitz. I live near the crematorium. As far as I am from you, I smelled. You would never eat roast chicken if you were there. I smelled. Let's get to the bottom of this thing, Smith interjected. She says, soap and lampshades. The professor says that's mistaken. Which is it? And then Berg shouts, even the Germans admit it, rolling up her sleeve to reveal her camp tattoo. They admit they had lampshades. And so in grappling with this, Jacobson is watching this display, thinking about it, and he's looking at people who want to define the veracity of the claim. He asks a question that I think really resonates with kind of what we do on the show. He says, but what if the lampshade is a myth that lives inside the survivors? How do you manage that? Does it make it less true? So after speaking with Denier Bud and listening to this shit, listening to this shit as a man whose dad fought in World War II, as a Jewish man whose dad took a picture on Hitler's balcony and sent it back to his mom. It was one of their prized possessions. Yeah. He then goes to a source that's probably not going to give him the same kind of unease. He goes to speak to Rosenberg, the writer of the Buchenwald Report. And Rosenberg had spoken with Denier Bud once. Why? Why do you do this? Bud called him up. He was like, hey, read your report. Have some things to add. Thanks. Let me get my pencil. 
And he says, you know, the Holocaust was a lie. And Rosenberg said, that lie killed 28 of my relatives and hung up his phone. Badass. <laughs> so Jacobson trucks out to El Paso, where Rosenberg lives, and they discuss Buchenwald. And in discussing it, they start talking about a philosopher named Immanuel Kant and his idea of radical evil. And the idea is, according to Rosenberg, that good keeps evil at bay. It is on the state level, such as the totalitarian dictatorial society in which the free will of people is completely oppressed, that evil becomes dominant. It will become the way of things. Thus radical bossa. Radical evil. Total destruction. Opposing will. Wiping it out. Sending it up the smokestack. That is what the camps were, said Rosenberg, who said he never felt sadder than the day he took his jeep and drove to Bergen-Belsen camp in Saxony, where he'd heard that several of his relatives had been sent by Nazis. I drove through the camp and through the horrible death, people lying there, staring into space, shouting on my U.S. Army bullhorn, screaming out to see if anyone knew the Rosenberg family from Gottingen. I found no one. Later, I met one of my relatives, my cousin Henry, one of the few who survived. Twenty-eight died, and he told me that he heard me. He heard me shouting, but he couldn't move, and he was too weak to answer my call. And then he describes the process of writing the report, and he says that people continued the entire time he was working on it to tell him that he was even-handed and level-headed. He says, They couldn't have gotten anyone better. Those people claimed to be innocent, but I knew they weren't. I knew that because I knew them. They said they were crying because they didn't know, but it was a lie. They were crying because they did know. They were hoping their tears would absolve them. Those people from Weimar, I took them around and showed them the crematorium, the places where the medical experiments took place where the Nazis ripped off prisoners' skin and made lampshades. I might have sounded neutral, because that is the way a soldier is supposed to conduct himself. My father was a soldier. He fought for Germany in the First World War, fought for these same people, the same people who 15 years later would follow Hitler. Now Rosenberg goes on to describe how he kept a piece of tattooed human skin that was taken from the Buchenwald table. It was the tattoo of a woman with a hat on her head. It came from the chest of a man. I could tell because you could see a nipple alongside the girl's head. I asked why he took the piece of skin, and Rosenberg shook his head. I've asked myself the same thing many times. In the beginning, it seemed like no big deal. At the time, there seemed to be many such objects in the camp. The pathology block had a veritable factory of human skin products. Ilse Koch was supposed to have had gloves of human skin, purses of human skin, whole Paris collection. There was no reason not to believe any of these stories. You heard them over and over again. Everyone said pretty much the same thing. We had entered hell. So there was no surprise to see hellish things. To me, the skin was just one more incredible item. It was years before I came to the conscious realization that the curled-up little piece of tanning had once been part of some poor soul's hide, and then I couldn't stand to have the thing near me anymore. I was having many terrible dreams, I still do, and the tattoo and many associations were there. The Nazis had perpetuated the worst crimes in history of the world, and here I had this little knick-knack. God. So it was driving him insane. Yes. It was. And speaking of insane. Oh, really? I think that's what we've been doing. Yes, it is. But this is a special kind of insane. This is lunacy. Because in the great state of Louisiana, you are still given a lunacy hearing if they suspect you're crazy. Is this personal experience? I plead the fifth. But Danny, 
David Dominici, the cemetery bandit's sister, calls Mark Jacobson. And she says to him that Dominici has somehow managed to wrangle himself up a lunacy hearing after he was arrested on possession charges. Because he's been howling at his arresting officers that he is untouchable because he will soon be famous because of the Nazi lampshade made out of Jew skin. And she asks if Jacobson could please write a letter to the parish and tell them that David is not crazy, that he will indeed soon be famous because of the Nazi lampshade made of Jew skin. <laughs> oh, that's going to be a good movie. Grave robbing and Nazis. Now David apparently said to the authorities, you can't do anything to me. You can't do anything to me because I'm the one who found the Nazi lampshade. I'm the one who found the Nazi lampshade and the New York Times is coming down here to make a movie of my life, so screw you. So he does write him the letter. And he also goes to LSU to get a second opinion on the lamp. And he goes to see a man by the name of Dr. Minyard, who was one of the pathologists who worked on the identification of bodies after Katrina. And so he tells him about his lampshade. And Minyard says, incredible what people will do. What can you say? It's one of the most unthinkable sort of things. Minyard leaned back in his chair. I've thought about it. What it might have been like to have done work at concentration camps, at places like Auschwitz, where you're looking at so many bodies, taken one by one. I don't think determining a cause of death would be difficult. You'd have asphyxiation, choking, circulatory collapse, pulmonary edema, gunshot wounds, blows to the head. You could put reports together in a nice, neat pile. But the why, the why, that would be another thing altogether. Forensics are never going to answer that why people would do something like that to other people. So, in the spirit of continuing to ask Louisianians about death, or maybe not ask them about death and just have them volunteer things to you about death, because it's kind of what we do. It's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> no one asks us. <laughs> but he runs into Cyril Neville, and he asks if he's ever heard anything about people taking human skin, you know, in New Orleans. And so what he relates might sound familiar well he finally allowed there was the gown man if our mother wanted to keep us home she'd tell us about the gown man he was this big white guy in a hospital gown and he'd snatch you off the street put you under his arm and take you over to the dissection room at tulane university medical school they'd pull off your skin and you get chopped up by medical students practicing their autopsies they had the needle men too supposed to shove a six inch needle in your eye suck out your brain out right from the socket Aaron Neville chimed in. I feel like I should have done that. Like, oh, oh, need a man. <laughs> then as Cyril was about to get up, he said, There is this one thing. I don't know if it helps you or not, but when we were kids, our parents used to send us to this Boy Scout camp by the lake. And we'd play ball and that, but on Wednesday, we went to the movies because that's the day they set aside for black people to go to the movies. They always showed these horror movies like Attack of the Crab Monsters, Creatures from the Black Lagoon, the usual shit trying to scare us, but the movies were so corny we just laugh. Then there was this one time the movie came on and you could tell how the first second this wasn't going to be the same old thing. The film was all messed up, looking with those scratches in it. At first you didn't see anything. It looked overexposed. Then you saw these people come out of what looked like a giant hole. These skinny, skinny people, their eyes sunk deep inside their head. They were wearing what looked like striped pajamas. They showed their dead bodies stacked up, and right away I was scared. We were all scared, because we knew that wasn't something fake. It was real. 
Remember that, Aaron? You're nodding. Then they had these other people marching by. And I think I saw that thing you're talking about. A lampshade they said was made of human skin. That was really scary. You're talking about footage from Book and Mall, the Book and Mall concentration camp? Some concentration camp, that was for sure. Long as I live, I'll never forget those pictures. Gives me the chills thinking about it even now. Because these two things about seeing that movie had always stayed with me. First of all, I couldn't believe white people would do that to other white people. But even more than that was the question about why they picked that particular Wednesday to show that particular movie to us. The kind of message they were trying to send. So from New Orleans, in the aftermath of Katrina, chatting with the Neville brothers about Buchenwald and why they were shown the film at Boy Scout camp, the next logical place to go is Buchenwald. You keep saying these are logical steps. It feels right. I think he's going with the wind. Maybe that's why I feel simpatico with his journey. But he does go to Buchenwald and he speaks with a man named Herr Wolfgang Roll. And Herr Wolfgang Roll has a cabinet of curiosities. A wonder cabinet? A wonder cabinet. It's not. It's the artifacts that are not fit for public display at the concentration camp. Roll takes out his own lampshade and hands it over to Jacobson. Jacobson's looking at it. He says, this is a fake. So you're right. It's laminated paper. Yes, quite fake. But it wasn't always fake. Once it was real. Or at least, that's what was said in the GDR Times. Much was said about lampshades. Stein, who's another researcher, said that he believed that Ilse Koch had given her husband Carl such a lampshade, construction of the pathology block for his birthday in 1939. This was something of a fad among the SS wives, Stein said. They were very intrigued with the research of Dr. Wagner, who was doing on tattooed men. As for Ilse Koch actively selecting individuals to be skinned, however, Stein was dubious. What must be understood is that Buchenwald was run like a kingdom under the Koch family. Karl was the king and his wife, the queen. People like to please the queen. The queen doesn't necessarily have to be an active participant. But it seems, according to the witnesses, as if Ilse Koch did give a human skin lampshade to Karl Koch, and everyone applauded it because it was such a wonderful gift. As a caveat, Stein added that Karl Koch's reputation for cruelty and corruption was widespread, so wherever Koch went, stories like the lampshade came up. This didn't mean that the lampshade had, was an insignificant item. As a symbol, it had great power, and as you are telling me, it still does. And so then... Oh God, what logical step is he going to take? He meets up with David Duke. Oh my God. Because David Duke is living in Eastern Europe, because of course he is. Okay. He's allowed to be more racist there? What I mean, why Well, is- he is allowed to be more racist, but he is not allowed to deny the Holocaust, which is a problem for him. He says that his teeth look, look like buffed chiclets, and that he tells him the lampshade is a myth, and that's about all you need to know about his meeting with David Duke. Thanks, David Duke. I just thought it was worth noting. So then he goes to Yad Vashem. And speaks with a Holocaust scholar, Yehuda Bauer. Now, Yad Vashem is the museum that you were talking about earlier, where they have the soap on display. And so while speaking to Bauer, he brings up the lampshade, and Bauer responds, Why shouldn't I believe that Germans made lampshades out of Jews? I wouldn't put anything past those people. 
And he was also not surprised at the difficulties in getting a major institution to take the lampshade. Holocaust institutions did a wonderful job in preserving memory and raising consciousness regarding genocide in general, but they were still institutions given to institutional thinking, and that meant fitting things into category. He said, I am not certain that Slimshade of yours has a category. Now, there was a problem because they could, they could not authenticate the, the ethnicity of the DNA, and that's apparently a big hang-up for some people. I just have to point out the irony of being a little bit racist about the lampshade DNA. Then, just a scotch. A scotch. A scotch of racial science. But Bauer was willing to entertain the idea that the lampshade might qualify as an icon of genocide. He said the DNA report was tantalizingly inconclusive and intellectually provocative. Now, they're meeting at a YMCA in Israel, but Bauer is about to sound like a timeless, sagely poet. He says to him, You're a writer, you tell stories. The meaning comes from the telling and the retelling. Not to make any comparisons, Bauer said, but this is what often thought of when he encountered Holocaust survivors. Tell your story, don't stop telling it. For Bauer, oral history was mutually beneficial to the teller and the listener. In the past decades, he'd heard so many stories, thousands of terrible stories, rattling around in my brain. Some of these narratives were more revealing than others, but all of them, even the lies, had value. One day, however, the last survivor will die. Even then, though, he and many other historians had written down their stories. Finding the truth of things will become more difficult because the voices, the sound of them, the voice of the teller will never be heard again. This is why he liked hearing about the lampshade from New Orleans and why I should keep telling the story. So while in Israel, he goes to speak to a man who defines himself as an Arab Israeli, Farid Abu Ghash. And while speaking to him, he says, when you bring up this lampshade, the making a lampshade out of a human being, it's an act of gratuitous cruelty. It is outside the general program. It is terror, sheer terrorism. It makes me think of the stories one hears from Lebanon, the reports of IDF bombs placed inside toys, which explode when the children pick them up. This is a similar thing. So while speaking with Professor Nig at Buchenwald, who's the director there now, and another man who's working with him named Professor Odemeyer. He learns that Professor Odemeyer had decided to investigate the lampshade a little more thoroughly. There is undue concentration on the darkness of German history, Odemeyer said. This is not to say there is not darkness, but there is light as well, as I am sure you know. That is what we try to do here at the museum, present a balance. So it is best that you take this lampshade to Professor Nick. He deals with this sort of objects, and to tell you the truth, I don't know how he does it. Every day in that gloom, surrounded by those terrible things, I have a lot of respect and sympathy for him. So, he does go to see Professor Nig, and he does not quite agree with Ottermeyer's assessment. But Nig did agree that Ottermeyer might be right about Buchenwald being the proper place to house such an artifact. It is too early to bury this lampshade, said Professor Nig, during our first meeting. It is not ready for the earth. He ran his hand over the graying fuzz on his head and looked out the window. It began sleeting. How can I explain? You say the lampshade is a story. And I would agree. But what kind of story do you want it to tell? When I first came here, there was nothing that could be depended on to be truth. When the GDR decided that they wanted to memorialize the camp, 
The first thing they did was tear the place down and reconstruct it in the image of what the state wanted it to be. This wasn't Auschwitz, not a death camp, so it was important to make Buchenwald more horrible, more bloody, because the GDR wanted to tell the story of the anti-fascist heroes. But now the GDR is gone, the Cold War is gone, and so are these stories. What are we left with? What we have, we have what the survivors tell us. We have the objects. For us, it is daily life to be confronted with objects we know to be part of a concentration camp, but in most ways remain silent. Did the Nazis shrink heads at Buchenwald? We have evidence that they did. Did Ilsakok conspire to make lampshades out of human beings? We cannot be sure. We keep trying to find out by confronting the atrocities we hope that we will change the minds of people, and in a way, perhaps, make the world a better place. So now we are in a different situation, because you have a lampshade that is made of human skin, this mythic object that is suddenly real. Because it exists, there are new questions to ask. We may never get an answer, but we continue to ask. That is why it is too early to bury this lampshade. It is still asking questions. Nick acknowledged the lampshade held a personal fascination. Myth or reality, reality or myth, the lampshade was inextricably tied to the history of Buchenwald. For many people, it was all they knew of the camp. There was no tossing out of the narrative here. Yeah, so again, he's just reiterating that no matter what, no matter if this is is real or not, it's still part of the story. And still part of what we think of when we hear that word, Buchenwald. And so he speaks to Nyeg again after more testing has been done on the lampshade. And at this point, they've learned nothing more than the first report stated. This is now the third test they've done. And they were hoping to prove that the DNA associated with the lampshade was from someone of Jewish origin. And they couldn't get those results. And so he calls them to let him know. And somehow, he doesn't seem that disappointed. He says, you're forced to accept the idea of limits. There are things you will never know. And it can be frustrating to be confronted with these structures of silence and the fantasies they produce. This is why it is helpful to be organized in your approach, establish frameworks for thought. With this lampshade, you can say it had a first history, which is the identification with the Buchenwald camp and people like Ilse Koch the lampshade on the table with people passing by it. And then there's the second history, the history with you, your adventures, your thoughts. There's this strange and frightening idea that someone would make a lampshade out of a person, and it has arrived in New Orleans after a storm. This interests you. So now the first history becomes infused by the passage of years and new context, and then we would come to a third history, a third possible history, one we can guess who gives us the right to close the book for the future. The questions must be kept open. The best thing to do is to treat it with respect, and we will see what happens next. That was probably good advice, I thought. If the lampshade was a story, I was only writing part of it. The thing would continue on, like a line of people waiting to have a bit of ash smeared onto their forehead after Mardi Gras. It would stay in the world, as it should, and someone would find it again. And unfortunately, the veracity of this story and this soap story have really been picked up by Holocaust deniers. 
It's a loose thread. Just pull that one loose thread, and they think it can all fall apart. But all you have to do is talk to the Holocaust survivors. All you have to do is talk to the people that came upon those camps. And you can know that it's real. And you can see why atrocities like making soap out of people are making lampshades out of human flesh is just not out of the realm of possibility. So George Sherman was a young Jewish soldier fighting in the Army's 11th Armored Division. He said, within a kilometer or two of leaving, we started to smell an odor, which we couldn't identify, which was really strong. They followed the stench and found stockades with barbed wire and prisoners wandering all over the place. Inside the gates, there were just piles of bodies stacked up and mainly people coming out of what turned out to be their barracks in the worst physical condition, skeletons wearing just rags. Now, Eisenhower toured many of these camps. And he said the visual evidence and the verbal testimony of starvation, cruelty, and bestiality were so overpowering as to leave me a bit sick. In one room where there were piled up 20 or 30 naked men killed by starvation, George Patton would not even enter. He said he would get sick if he did so. I made the visit deliberately in order to be in position to give first-hand evidence of these things if ever, in the future, that develops the tendency to charge these allegations merely to propaganda. Now our young Jewish soldier George Sherman also says, How can they, in the face of all the evidence that has been carefully documented and authenticated, how can they deny this? It's unbelievable. Further testing was done on that lampshade. It was. And with more modern analysis, it was shown to be most likely of bovine origin. But I feel like I can say that doesn't matter. Because the journey, trying to find out where this thing had come from, honors everyone that it could have been. And I feel like by the end of the war, by the time the camps were liberated, by the time six million people had died, it became so obvious that when you rob someone of their identity, when you rob someone of their freedom, their spirit, they might as well be lampshades or soap. Those bodies that are piled up that we can all see. They are empty shoes. They are empty homes. They're families that lost one another and lost everything. At the price of one madman. And we should all remember that that can happen. And we shouldn't just be afraid of being turned into a lampshade. We should be afraid that we could take part in making one. Because these weren't monsters to begin with. The entire populace of Germany was not made of monsters. It's following orders and not questioning things and going along and saying this works out well for me, so I don't care how it works out for anyone else. That's how we lose our humanity. And whether you lose your hum- humanity by being robbed of it or by surrendering it, without it you're just a thing. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.